0: Hello and welcome to Triumph. My name is Daniel and I am still waiting for my Hogwarts letter. I can't believe it's taken this long. Yeah, no, I mean, you're like what, 30,
1: 40, 45 now? So I I don't think you're going to Hogwarts, buddy.
0: Well, no, I mean, the semester just started a couple weeks ago. That's what I meant. What are you saying? I'm I'm sorry
1: forgive me i'm sorry no no i would never say anything like that sorry i was confused i was thinking of somebody else yeah i don't think you're going to hogwarts pal but don't worry because i'm not either my letter was supposed to be like 15 years ago i uh my name is Bo. Uh, i am terminated by OmniDroid. if you're looking for me you can't find me uh syndrome took me out and
0: uh it's done now that's it yep that's, that's it no more Bo. just a pile of ash that leads us pretty pretty cleanly into our episode topic today, which is a fantastic um, Pixar film uh, called The Incredibles, um, hmm. a great superhero film we're recording today on September 13th for our 13th episode. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that bodes well and is not ominous at all for the quality of this episode. Uh, the Incredibles is a really fantastic, uh, really interesting movie, but... Before we dive into that, I feel like there's a couple of uh um interesting uh things that are happening uh in other parts of pop culture twenty twenty three has been a great year for video games and we just got another um highly anticipated launch from Bethesda with starfield um, yes that's been quite an experience I know Bo you're playing it on your uh series s uh, yeah I'm, I'm playing it on my uh computer yeah. Yeah. So I guess if you want to tell us a little bit about your, your uh, experience um, with Starfield. I'm a huge Starfield fan. I, I,
1: again, a a listener, if you've, if, if you're, if you've been here for all 13 episodes, you know, I was a sheltered Nintendo boy. And so the world of all other kinds of games has been cracked wide open for me in the last year or two. And, uh, Starfield is super exciting for me because I followed the hype cycle uh was excited for it to come out didn't get to spend a ton of time with Skyrim or Fallout and so far i am loving starfield i am like 30 40 hours in and i'm having an absolute just the absolute time of my life you know all the stuff that other people are like oh yeah that's just bethesda you know that stuff's new for me um even the the inventory management aspect i'm even having a little bit of fun with you know collecting loot and <laughs> deciding what to sell and and what to what to drop and what to give to my companions. I think Andrea is getting a little bit sick of uh, <laughs> carrying 18 helmets, uh, half of which are worth less than 400 credits, but it is what it is. I have to make that money somehow. That's right. Um, you got to make those creds. So I'm loving Starfield. So Have you played Starfield at all, Daniel? I know you maybe you're a few hours in.
0: Yeah, I'm just a handful of hours in. Um, I reignited my uh, game pass to give it a shot. Um, and I'm glad that I did uh, because... It's been, it's been a pretty fun experience. Um, as a, something of a Bethesda veteran, played uh, Morrowind way back in the day. Right, because you're like 40, 45
1: years old, which we exactly. talked about earlier.
0: Yeah, it was actually really interesting to see the dinosaurs both in the game and out my window. <laughs> it was uh, pretty crazy. <laughs> but uh, um, played sunk many, many, many hours into Oblivion, Fallout 3 uh even though it was made by a different company uh obsidian fallout new vegas which i adore uh, fallout 4 uh and of course skyrim um so i've kind of done the bethesda formula a lot um but starfield does a lot of really cool stuff to sort of reinvigorate it and add new layers uh obviously the space element being able to travel there's the ship combat the ship building yep um yep. but it's got it's bolted onto Honestly, a really robust um core which is like you, mean, like you mentioned, it's this um uh, RPG game with lots of different elements, lots of items and loot. Yep. Um uh, places to explore, quests to undertake, area like nooks and crannies everywhere. And that's kind of the joy of a lot of these games and I think Super. Starfield is going to become even more alive as they release DLC for it as yep. modders uh sink their teeth into it and create their own content. Um, I'm really excited to explore the Starfield galaxy.
1: Yep. Starfield's been awesome. There's so much so much to do in it. The other big thing that's happening on top of Starfield, which is also space, but, but not so much gaming, is that the Ahsoka episode, which aired yesterday, so we're recording this on the 13th, yesterday was the 12th, which aired yesterday, is like everything that we've been waiting for in Star Wars for like, what eight, nine, ten years at this point to to, I, to get? I, I mean, I mean, it's like I I don't even know where to begin because there's so much that that happened that is just unbelievable to have finally seen on screen.
0: It was it was great to see Filoni, um really take ownership of this episode in a big way. It's got Feloni's fingerprints all over it. Got sure, the world between worlds. We've got the Clone Wars. We've got Ahsoka we've got yeah. young Ahsoka we've got Anakin calling Ahsoka snips which yeah. you know uh you know lightened my heart a little bit yeah. because man I mean the, um Anakin's uh where we saw we saw Clone Wars Anakin portrayed by Hayden Christensen really well
1: and, and it worked really it well
0: wa- it was great it it if uh, Disney era Darth Vader has been a lot about exploring bridging that gap between Anakin Skywalker, Clone Wars hero and Jedi Knight to yeah. uh, dark brooding Vader. Um, you know, this episode really hammered it in with the um, with the flashes of yes, um you know Anakin. Walking into the the smoke and then yes. flashing Vader with the with the blood red lightsaber, yeah, um, really hammering home it's it 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 was Clone Wars that transformed Anakin into Vader. Yeah. You know, it was and, the trials of war and the cyborg voice mm-hmm. uh, where he says you lack conviction, and they
1: blend the the Vader voice into it it's so much. I mean, you know, I think Kenobi did this for me really well where seeing Hayden just out of the corner through the mask finally cemented in my brain, you know, as much as we knew it. It was like, okay, Hayden Christensen is Darth Vader. Like the Anakin we see in the prequels is the Vader we see in the original trilogy and Kenobi did that. That was the thing that Kenobi <laughs> did that I that I that I think justifies Kenobi's existence. Um and I, and I loved seeing Hayden, and I loved seeing more Vader. I had a huge problem with young Ahsoka though, to be totally Dude. honest. I Loved that it was happening in front of me. I mm-hmm. loved the prosthetics and the costume and the attention to detail. I loved the combat. I loved seeing the 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 mall, the I loved mm-hmm. seeing Siege of, like everything about it. I I loved. And then I just something about and no no, I, I don't know how to say this. I thought Ariana Greenblatt did a a fine job. I just couldn't. I it. I mean, it was like. It was like a gut reaction where she came on screen and I was like, oh no. <laughs> like, I just, I just didn't see it. It wasn't Ahsoka for me. And I don't know that there's anything that anybody could have done to do that differently. Like, they might have done it the best they possibly could. And that's it. And they did a great job. And something's just weird about me, right? But I, I the biggest problem I had with that episode was I just couldn't reconcile... The two faces. I, mm-hmm. I guess maybe I was imagining that Siege of Mandalore Ahsoka was older, like
0: eighteen, mm-hmm. nineteen, somehow. Right. Um Well, we and- see, I mean, that wouldn't be too far off because we see uh, her grow um over the course of Clone Wars. And there yeah. are, she goes through three notable, like, costume changes and style changes over Clone Wars. Yep. Yep. So the their choice to kind of leave her in the same costume, well, yeah. was it? I'm sure it was useful from a like like a continuity perspective. Yeah, uh, it would have been nice to see her with a a slightly updated uh, outfit. Maybe do a little bit to make her look a little bit older, a little bit more maybe. like an like a an older teen. Because well, I, there I mean, is a time jump that happens between when we first see her in the Clone Wars and talking to Anakin. And when we last see her with Anakin.
1: Yeah. Well, I think there's also a little bit of a baby face effect that happens when you put makeup on somebody. Where it smooths out the wrinkles and the lines and the eyebrows and the eyelashes. And so, I just thought she looked a little bit too young. But otherwise, Ahsoka's been amazing. I think it's been Mm -hmm. an incredible season. And I can't wait to see where it goes from there. So, it's a crazy, crazy time in uh, pop culture and, and science fiction specifically right now.
0: For sure. One thing that I um, really want to mention about Ahsoka in the last episode is there's an interesting juxtaposition that happens where we see uh, Ahsoka as a young child um, yeah. during the Clone Wars, and it's treated very heavily. When you compare yeah. it to the Clone Wars animated series, like its I mean, it deals with some dark topics, but a lot of the time, like, Ahsoka is like a fun, giddy kid, and it's like, oh, we're, it's a fun action tale and we kind of gloss over that when we're watching clone wars but it, uh this show really kind of uh, like hammered home like no like people died clones mm. died other people died and it there's interesting parallels with kind of the sort of laissez-faire attitude that um that a lot of these animated shows can take with the type of violence that they show um yeah. and then maybe Maybe it's uh, a little bit too shocking in some cases.
1: Well, you know, um, but that's they, animation.
0: They, uh, conveniently, thanks to George Lucas's kid-friendly
1: cleverness, you mm-hmm. know they never have to reckon with all of the people they killed, mm-hmm. because it was battle droids, right? But they do have to reckon with all of the people they lost, and so that's right. that's usually the the song that they play, sort of the song and dance they do is, you know, all the brothers, all the soldiers, and that's right. a real. You know that's that's a that's an impactful story that could be told. Yeah, um, it's also adult Ahsoka looking through the lens of young Ahsoka, right? Like, right. You know, for fifteen, sixteen-year-old Ahsoka to charge into battle, having fun, using her skills and talents to chop up robots, you know, it makes sense that she would act it out like as if it was no big deal in the Clone Wars show. So that almost fits, I think, with the the the, the discrepancy you just described. Yeah. But then I for agree. adult I think- Ahsoka in young Ahsoka's body to view it. You know, and say, okay,
0: this is how I I was formed. This is kind of messed up, right? And I feel like the, Filoni is is highlighting that. You know, he's yes. he's making making us see it in a similar way. Um, Brad Bird actually kind of plays with the, that idea in The Incredibles, though maybe doesn't take it as far as sure um, as they, he might could might have. Um, but I do want to definitely sink deep into uh, the Incredibles movie. Yeah. Um, it, it, Good. You know what? It's just, it's it's
1: funny because I'm looking at our show script right here mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, just because it's a big moment, it's like, we got to do two minutes on Starfield. We got to do two minutes on Ahsoka, but then we really got to get into Incredibles. And I, I don't know how long it's been, but it feels like it's been 10 already. So let's, so let's get to it for sure. Incredibles <laughs> is what we're here to talk about today. For sure. Um, uh, but very,
0: very excited for more Ahsoka. Very excited to play more Starfield. Thanks for getting us back on track. Uh, that's what I do. That's what I do. That's why I'm here. Uh, Incredibles <laughs> is a It is a really interesting movie. I think it came out in 2005, 2003. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Early 2000s, for sure. Um, And up to this point, Pixar had kind of made a few other, obviously classic films. We got Monsters, Inc., of course, Toy Story, um, and a couple other ones. But um, The Incredibles is very action-packed for for Pixar, and very action-packed for for disney um there's sure. a lot of a lot of action in this movie and there there were a lot of interesting design choices that were made for uh to make a lot of the action happen on screen um and it's pretty amazing what they were able to, do, to do with the sort of early 2000s technology but there was pixar like pushing the boundaries of what we could see the the fluidity of the motions i think i remember Ugh. seeing a documentary a long time ago where they talked about how they had to um, give the characters muscles, like underneath yeah. their skin, in the in the digital sense, um, yeah. so that they that they moved naturally, and that there was real focus on their body movements and positioning, so that they that it looked fluid and not stilted.
1: I think at some point there were copies of Grey's Anatomy being passed around to make sure mm-hmm. that the animators understood how the human body should and shouldn't move. I think the other reason this is a landmark moment is because up until then, you really hadn't seen a lot, if any, humans in animated films. Because audiences are pretty rough about, you know, if humans don't look quite right, you feel it. You know it right away. Um, You know, in terms of a technical feat, I mean, this film's got hair. It's got Mm -hmm. lava. It's got water. It's got, you know, like you said, it's got muscles and and, and bones that have to move around. Um, Some of it shows. But... Mm -hmm. I think when you watch, it, it's t- thousand four. By the way, two thousand four. Watching so it, it now, nineteen years later, mm-hmm. you know w- what I see is I see all the places where they were clever and made space so that they could spend more time on things like the hair, the water, and the facial expressions where it counted. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I loved Incredibles when it came out. This was a movie I watched with my family. I was very very lucky to have parents who were really into storytelling. And so mm-hmm. we would watch this over and over and, and, and they, I remember my parents laughing much harder than I was at the <laughs> traffic <laughs> argument and, you know, which exit to take. And I also remember, uh, you know, poking fun at my sister about it because we were a family of four, uh, mm-hmm. except I was the older brother with a younger sister, whereas Violet is the older sister. Mm-hmm. And so we loved Incredibles. We'd watch it over and over again. We would, you know, dance to the music when it was playing. And it was a very, very happy family moment for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have always said, you know, that I think Incredibles is a perfect film. I think it's really well structured. Um, I think they work within limitations to make careful choices to tell the right story beats at the right times. Some of the other thing, you know, in getting ready for this episode, I was, I was, I was reading and I was watching and I was listening about Incredibles. Uh, one of the things I heard is that it went through a lot of different story changes. Um, you know, that Brad Bird worked on this for years and years. And then in development, they made lots of cuts and, and moved pieces around a lot. And I think the result is something that feels really polished and complete and, and understood from start to finish. Um, There's so much to go
0: into here. I don't even know where to begin. Yeah, um, Brad Bird focused on uh, detail and characters and making sure that it was a character-driven drama. When The Temptation, if you're cast with a making a superhero film, right, yeah. might be uh, focus on the action, focus on the spectacle. And there's a yes. lot of action, and there's actually a lot of spectacle too. But Brad Bird knows how to make sure that the characters are animated and have real personalities that bounce off each other and really play into the family dynamic. He's also very genre savvy. Um, so he knows how to take a lot of these elements and and put them together in a, a really crafty way, that always remembers to put the characters first,, um, yeah. and I think one of my favorite Brad Bird films um was the Iron Giant. Yes, um, yeah, and that one also plays with like how like there's a decent amount of spectacle, but there's also like a really strong heart to the film. Uh, yeah. it's also got that uh that 50s aesthetic which I think Brad Bird maybe just really, really likes. Maybe Because there's so, a lot of 50s yeah. aesthetic in uh, in The Incredibles, even though it in takes Metroville. place. Yeah, Metroville. And with the technology, it's got a retrofuturism to it. They never say when it takes place, right? Well, they but do. But
1: nope, 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 My So my wife is really into these details. And so we were mm-hmm. watching it. Uh, and there was a newspaper that flashed. And there's a date. There's a year on the newspaper. And the oh. year was 19... 19- Sixty-eight, and it was the news. It wasn't the old newspaper. It wasn't during the flashback sequence. It's the newspaper that explains the Gazer Beam has gone missing, right? Or that the you know the secret identity of Gazer Beam has gone missing. And Sandra was like, "Pause it, pause it, pause it." And sure enough, it was nineteen sixty-eight. Oh, there you go. But it's not Earth, exact, or or it's not you know a current American city. It's some other place. So right, you know. You can play loose with that year. But nineteen sixty eight is the supposed in universe year.
0: Gosh, I didn't even know that.
1: That's really go. interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, but either way, um I mean that actually also plays into like the spy thriller aspects of it. It's got like a sure. lot of Bondisms, uh, specifically yeah. like a lot of the more like cartoonish aspects of the later Yeah. Uh, mid yeah. Uh, mid uh to later Bond films. Um, you know, the music, I mean, the music the is music,
1: sort of bond It's very, from that era yeah. as well, where you would have this orchestral jazz score, which of course is impeccable. I mean, Giacchino really proving himself and, 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 and making his way. I mean, I think I, I'm not a hundred percent, but I'm pretty sure that Incredibles was like a breakthrough for him career-wise. Um, yeah. and has led to him being in almost everything else that we know and love today. That um,
0: film, uh um Up, and, of course um he did the 2009 star trek soundtrack which yeah mediocre movie but the soundtrack is phenomenal in that movie and i think well, he, he also just, did lost i believe yeah that sounds right I, yeah i think it you're right there too did
1: some incredible work uh lost uh there's a particular track called life and death which is gorgeous
0: and he might have done rogue one he did one of the star wars i can't sure remember which. amy
1: he's done so much yeah um but Incredibles has that, so so it has that. I, I don't know. Is it retro futurism, something to it? I would Maybe say not so. even. But it's it's yeah. almost seventies too. Like when you look at their home decor, right? When you look at the 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 plates and the and the furniture and the cars, mm-hmm. it, it's it's almost early mid seventies looking. Yeah. Um, in style, but I don't know. I didn't live in those years, so 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 I could be missing something.
0: Well, and again, it plays into like that, like that bond uh, a- aspect of it too. Where, yeah, you know, it's it like his like the par world, right? the The world that the pars have to live in is pretty like like normal in the sense of like there's not any crazy technology or anything like yeah. that. It's really only when he enters the spycraft world um, and he goes to the the island and stuff like that. That you see a lot more of the futuristic elements, um, yes, um, at play. But again, like you know, uh, Syndrome, the main bad guy, he's a he's an he's a mad scientist, right? So of course he's going to have all the all the crazy uh, technology, holograms, yeah. and uh, scanners, and drones, and all sorts of other crazy stuff, laser beams. Sure, yeah. Um, it, it, you know what? And it also, I mean, you mentioned Brad
1: Bird being really genre savvy. Mm-hmm. And one of the genres this does sort of fall into is superhero film, mm-hmm. and so you've got It might be one know, of those. It might be one of those, but to your point, it's it's also sort of a spy thriller. Um, it's 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 almost a comedy in the sense that it's like family and, and mm-hmm. how they come together. You said something earlier. I want to go back to which is you know, the the film is really about the characters for Brad Bird instead of being about the action. Mm-hmm. even though it falls into a superhero and other genres. I I think it's to, to prove exactly how right you are is the opening of the film, which is this documentary style introducing you to uh, Bob and Helen and Lucius. And also how each of them is totally wrong about their life. Like Bob Parr is like uh, talking about how, how successful he is. And then immediately, you know, there's some failure that happens uh, right. Helen Parr is talking about how she's never going to stop. She's always going to be, you know, Elastigirl, and she's, she's on the top of her game. And then immediately she's stay-at-home, a wife. You know, Lucius is talking about how he's a ladies' man. We find out later he's married, you know, <laughs> committed to a single a single person. Married and, uh, to the greatest good he's ever going to get. To the greatest good he's ever going to get. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and so, but to your point, Brad Bird is very clear at the very opening of the film. This is about the people in the film.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And their perspectives and all of that. And one thing that I feel like a lot of superhero movies often miss um, because they want to be big blockbuster spectacle is they forget that what's great about superheroes, especially in the comics, is when they're when they're saving and protecting the little man, you know, and it's a little uh, it's a little stereotypical, but it's still so much fun. When yeah. He's like, he has to get the cat. So it's like the stereotypical, he's got to rescue the cat from the tree, but he handles yeah. it. in the way that, of course, uh, Mr. Incredible would, he's like, well, I can't actually get the cat. So I'll just pull the tree from the roots yes. and shake the tree until the cat comes off. You know what? That, let's talk about that opening, um,
1: you know, 10, 15 minutes, because I think it's so, it sets up so much for the film. Obviously, mm-hmm. it sets up the transition from the glory days into the the modern, quote-unquote, era for those superheroes in, in that world. But it also sets up a, a thesis, which I think is developed later. The thesis being, you know, you can't do everything on your own. Right. You know, you need to trust in the talents of the people who you love. You need to give them space to succeed as so that you can also succeed. You know, this is what Bob Parr is unable to do. The film... You know, after these documentary scenes opens with him stumbling his way from one mess into another, into another, mm-hmm. into another. Ultimately, you know, over fifty percent of the problems that he encounters, he's in some way responsible for. I think you know he ends up leaving a mess behind everywhere he goes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he sure he tries to stop the train, but you know, the hole in the in the tracks wouldn't have even been there if not for Bon Voyage and the mm-hmm. whole buddy scenario. And so there's these interconnected series of events where Bob ends up making more of a mess than he cleans up. And he's also totally unaware of how his action and or inaction led to those mistakes. You know, he, mm-hmm. the cops say, what happened? He said, well, buddy here, you know, blames it on buddy. Right. Even in Even in his home life with Helen and the kids, you know, like cutting up Dash's steak, for example. You mm-hmm. know, he gets so excited about the hero stuff that he actively damages their personal property, uh, mm-hmm. for example, the table. And then when he realizes that he's going to have to clean it up on his own, he becomes just a brooding, you know, angry mm-hmm. pouty kid. He's like, "Oh, now I got to pay to fix the table. And right. it's like, yeah, there are consequences to not being responsible with your abilities. Um, and, 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 and how do you, how do you find a way to collaborate and move forward? I think that's a really, really key part of the film. Is how they set that up.
0: Oh, for sure. And the way that they set um, Bob out to be like resentful for um, basically being wronged by the injustice of he can't be a hero anymore is wonderfully underlined um, with a great, a brilliant piece of uh, dramatic irony that Brad Bird and the scriptwriters chose, which is he's got to be an insurance man. (laughs) <laughs> and not not just any insurance company, like the insurance company that you know is run by this this little guy who's got a, a power hungry attitude and yeah. he wants to just stamp every amount of creativity out of everyone. It's so, like how do you yeah. how do you rail against Bob's inability to to like fit in with a group or with yeah. be a cog in a machine? You make that machine the most like um infernal machine possible which yes. is highlighted with an insurance company that's supposed to help people when they're in trouble yes and he's hear about the customers Bob I want to hear how you're keeping insurer care in the black i've I've shared this theory with you before, but I want to share oh, it no. uh, over the uh record uh, over the I mic. wondered if you were gonna do this go ahead well so. One of the things that I think, uh, one of the reasons why I feel like InsuraCare is so concerned about staying in the black, beyond just being, like, generic corporate greed, um, is that because heroes are no longer allowed to be it, like, they're not legal anymore, so they're not allowed to go out and fight crime and stuff like that, well, supervillains, like, they don't care if they're illegal. They're already illegal, right? So, you get rid of the superheroes. It's not like the supervillains just disappear, right? Mm. So, the supervillains are going to cause a lot of chaos and mayhem. So, how does society choose to handle that? Well, insurance payouts, right? So, now, all the insurance, everybody's basically paying into this insurance system that is designed to only pay (laughs) out whenever, like, uh, these uh, supervillains cause mayhem and destroy a bunch of property because who yep. needs to get paid out? Oh, the corporations, of course. Yeah. Right. So it's not the little man, the person that, that Bob de- so desperately wants to protect. Here, you know? right. I mean, so. maybe
1: syndrome is a stockholder in insurer care, you know, I would believe you know, maybe that- that's how he's got all that money. I look, I, I mean, what you're saying makes sense, but they, at no point does the movie make an effort to explain that to us. And at no point do they give us the evidence that you're suggesting is implied, which is that there are supervillains rampant without the heroes. They don't show us supervillains at any point, except when there are heroes involved to solve it. So I like your, unless you're thinking of, unless I'm forgetting something.
0: No, you're, you're right. The only other little bit that I would uh, throw in is the Underminer, right? At the very, very end of the film. But the heroes are there. But That's the heroes what I'm are saying there, but they that it's not like the heroes like it's not oh, right. like the underminer like if they if the underminer wasn't expecting there to be heroes. Right, cuz he was just expecting there to be just he
1: doing his normal stuff. You're right. But which implies that there are is probably other supervillain activity. I just I don't think I don't think insurance conspiracy is the coolest theory I've ever heard about the incredible's universe to be honest with you. It's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, but it is cool in the sense that there's a—it sounds like what you're saying is the reason that would be cool is because there would be a meta reason that the insuric insurance company is so messed up, and it would be even more cruel that Bob himself could be part of that even bigger solution, and he is just relegated to being a cog in the wheel. Is that what you're—is that why that right. matters?
0: Right. Well, and also because it, it speaks to um, the a larger societal, like, tendency— Um, to just sort of like placate, right? Uh, we're just gonna, we're just gonna placate to what's going on. No, no one's going to stand up. This is a society where nobody is going to stand up. It is illegal to stand up and do the right thing. Now it's painted as it's illegal for superheroes to be vigilantes, but really what it's about is it's, they're making it, you need to fit in, Bob, you need to, we all just need to fit in and go with the flow and not make waves. Um, Because society runs better when nobody's making waves. Sure. sure, Yeah. Which the film doesn't
1: necessarily say that you, that, that fitting in is a bad thing. Like the end of the film, you know, Violet and Dash, I think, um, who are, who push the most against this idea of fitting in other than Bob himself because they're kids. At the end of the film, you know, Dash gets to, gets to win a second place trophy. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a moment I think about a lot for for various other reasons. And Violet gets to go on her date uh, and she gets to take control. She's like, I'm going to pick the movie. I'll buy the popcorn. Right. Uh, You know, they do ultimately fit in. Mm -hmm. Not because they, like, reject their superness, but because they get to express it in other areas of their life now. Right. And so I don't think the thesis is, like fitting in and living a human life is a bad thing. It's just that we all have, I don't know, maybe it's not that deep. I don't know. It's sort of interesting though, because ultimately they do
0: learn to fit in somehow. Right. Well, yeah. And I mean, that's that's what I think the story is really about is it's about, it's not enough to just fit in and go with the flow and be quiet and meek, but you can't just go around smashing things and you can't just go around, you know, proclaiming your your uh uniqueness and strength and all around the place because you're gonna it, it's not gonna lead well sure. you know even if you're well-meaning you're gonna be like uh like bob and you're gonna break stuff and you're there's you're gonna leave a uh, chaos your yep. wake. or yep. you're going to fall into the trap of being syndrome where you you fall in love with your own intellect and you you believe that you can just you can create all these tools to magically solve problems and wouldn't it be great but hey i'm saving all the best tools for me because it's really about power and those who have it and those who don't So it's about the integration of like you got to be a society uh you got to be part of society but you got to find your role in society um in a, a health a healthy constructive way um so i feel like that's the biggest uh message um that it has for us um, and the Bob starts off feeling one way and Helen starts off feeling another way and they butt yeah. heads about it because there's neither of them are 100% right about it Helen has very good points for why things should they should go about things a certain way and Bob does yeah. too um, and that's why the scene when they argue is such a powerful scene not merely because uh, it's these two ideological ideas clashing but because sure. I think it also taps into something even more elemental, which is that every kid has overheard their parents fighting. Sure, and it's like, oh, nobody like that's it's, it's like a thing where you just it's just a, a deep part of everybody's memory, and it's like, yeah, that doesn't make them bad parents, but right, that is something that's like a big part of childhood, and yeah. so. Portraying it in that way, and then like them getting into a yelling match, and then yeah. them immediately going and then like apologizing to Dash because they they were fighting. And right. they, they saw how that affected Dash and, and Violet. Well, and
1: my favorite part of that scene, you know, it's not even the themes they address, it, it's not even how much Helen Parr, I think, is totally right in that moment, but it's also how like there's this detail where when the fight's finally over and the kids have gone back to bed and Bob Parr has gone to bed where Helen steps over to the lamp and instead of stretching out to pull it, she walks over and and uses her normal arm to pull it like a normal human would. It's this incredible admission of, of, or or demonstration of her ability to restrain herself, Mm -hmm. which Bob is just, Lacking, he has this. He has this emotional immaturity that Helen has has grown beyond, and he just can't not keep his strength in check. He wants to throw the car. He mm-hmm. wants to strangle his boss. He wants to bust through the wall, even though the building's going to come down. Like he's got, he, he's just totally unable to control himself in a way that Helen demonstrates. You know, in that moment that that she can control herself. I think. I think that's one of the other, the other themes that the film doesn't necessarily address but demonstrates, uh, which is a theme that I believe is a uh, holistic truth of the world, which is that men are dumb and lazy <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh,
1: and emotionally immature on average. in part because society enables them to be, but also because this is my this is my sociology minor kicking in in part because uh, society enables them to be, but also because other men don't hold them accountable to being emotionally mature. And so you know, Bob and Lucius, for example, going on a joy, uh you know a bowling night is a great is. example of that anyway rambling a little bit but there's lots of stuff that happens in that scene i think uh, a super interesting detail is how helen pulls the lamp and doesn't stretch to reach it
0: right yeah because she's she is obviously adapted to life as uh, a non super uh, much better than than bob has and yeah, definitely. we're we're hinted at that uh early on um, at the very beginning, whenever they're about to get married, and she kind of tells him, "Like I thought, you were uh, you were just doing friendly banter." And then she kind of takes him to task of like, "Look, that's you're, that's cute, but you're gonna need to be more, Bob. Yeah. You're gonna need to be. You're, you're gonna yeah. to make to make this work. You it, you're, you can't just be Mr. Incredible." And he's like, "Sure, sure, I know. Yep." <laughs> and he's just like, "Yeah." And then I, I honestly feel like even if the other parts of the like the superheroes falling uh, being banned and stuff like that, like if they'd continued to be like superheroes in, uh while the kids were growing up, um, you know, I still think that's something that Bob would have had to wrestle with is definitely like he can't be Mr. Incredible all the time uh, yep. in the sense of like Mr. Incredible, the superhero. You yeah. Yeah and so we know that's going to be a problem whereas like Helen is already kind of even before she was told she couldn't be a superhero anymore um she'd already con- uh, consciously processed my I'm not going to be uh, Elastigirl in the same way that I was before I got married because yeah um we're going to have a family we're going to have kids um you know there there's l- practical reasons why uh, my life is going to change, and I understand that. And Bob just doesn't seem to. Yep, totally. Yep, it's a, it's a. I
1: mean, I, I think it, in a broader way, I think it's the picture of many American families. Um, but, but that's definitely again maybe maybe a broader topic. Not so much about the story. The other, the other thing that I think was really interesting about watching The Incredibles in 2023 was. The animation and more specifically, not just the places where they were clearly pushing it that were unique for the time, but also the places that they compromised so that they could push it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at it through a purely technical lens, there's a lot of expensive things that happen in that movie, things that were expensive at that time. So there's a lot of water stuff that happens on No Island. There's a lot of mm-hmm. lava stuff and the way the light reflects off the lava and how they portray the lava and the bubbles and the oozes. Um, you know, Violet's hair mm-hmm. um now to be honest, I think looks horrible. I mean, it's almost <laughs> gross and weird to look at. In most scenes it looks okay, but like that very first scene where you see her, mm-hmm. where she's like hiding on the side of the staircase, mm-hmm. something about it looks looks icky to me. There's a there's like a scene with Syndrome where you can almost see through the follicles of his hair and you can see his bald head underneath. <laughs> uh and there's even a scene like with the principal Uh, whether in the principal's office, you know, Mm -hmm. coincidence, I think not. If you look at the side of the principal's head, you know, because mostly you're looking at the teacher who's hilarious and dominating the scene. Right. You look at the side of the principal's head. It's like no lighting effect at all. There's like, you know, the sideburns are just these little triangles that are sticking out. Right. So you can see now you can see where they were clearly like focusing in one area. You know, they couldn't do everything, you know, perfectly well. Right, and so they clearly spend more time on some character models and less time on others. The opening, uh, you know, you mentioned where he he gets Mr. Whiskers out of the tree, Mr. Incredibles, you know, gets the cat down, and you know you can see where there's so much detail and color and and, and even some texture on Bob Parr's face, and then the police officers have like these generic white faces, uh, and <laughs> where their teeth are sort of uniform and their eyes move at the same way. Yep. And then there's, again, there's Mr. Incredible who's got texture and depth. And so lots of little moments where they really, really, I mean, I don't think it's about cutting corners. I think they were really pushing the limits and you can see where they had to make a choice where they had right. to say, we're going to do this really well so that we can, we're going to do this, not as well so that we can do other things really well. Right. Um. I like how many of the objects in this film were round or smooth in some way, like, how many of Syndrome's tools, ships, right. even the OmniDroids themselves, were mm-hmm. perfect circles? Yeah, because the less texture you know you add, the less detail you add, the easier it is to to animate and move, and the quicker you can move on. You know how many how many flat surfaces are there in this film? In this film, that mm-hmm. don't have any texture but have sort of a photo painted on so that it looks like it has texture. Like, I think there's one scene where Bob uh slides down the grass on No Novanitas Island like on his very first Omnidroid mission. Mm-hmm. And it's literally just a flat plane, like it's a flat downhill right. and you can see that it's almost like a like a PlayStation 2 video game where you can <laughs> see the the painted grass
0: where it's just a texture that's been mapped onto a onto a shape. And yet um uh to contrast whenever he is examining his uh Mr. Incredible old outfit And he's like Mm. putting his fingers through the hole where he got, where it ripped. And you can see like the texture of it. Yes. Like the amount of detail that went into that so that it looked like um, a suit, you know, like that wasn't just plastered on because it was important for the texture to be, to be seen.
1: Edna calls that material something. She calls it like hero mesh or something. And she's like, ah, so outdated. But you're right. There's like a detail there. And then again, I think they picked their moments really carefully because they wanted Um You know, they, they wanted audiences to not lose it in the moments where it mattered. Right. And and and
0: I think they did that really well. Yep. Edna Mode is also just great. Just a quick moment on Brad yes. Birds, Edna Mode. Yes, Brad
1: Which I forget is, I I swear, like four or five times in my life, I have learned that that was Brad Bird. And then I have forgotten it again later. And then I have been reminded.
0: I love Um, that. It's so great. It's such a great little character that is so animated and just really, you love these over to the top characters. Yes. I love it. Yeah.
1: My God. (laughs) So good. So good.
0: Yes. Yes, darling. It's fine. (laughs) <laughs> call me when the, the, you get back like, oh, please, I enjoy like i'm too busy i couldn't possibly do it please tell me before couldn't I change my mind.
1: <laughs> yes yes exactly
0: um, yeah there's also something
1: else you know watching this as an adult there's something else that happens in the movie a few times that it was super weird for me watching it as an adult that i didn't even think about when i was a kid and maybe that proves that they made the right choice and everything's fine but there's a lot of death that happens in this film that's just sort of like glossed over mm-hmm. um even like opening with a suicide, like mm-hmm. that's dark. Yeah, and they don't even pretend that that's not what it was. Like, ten seconds later, the guy's like, "No, I wanted to kill myself." Like, right? Like, what? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> having somebody write that for like a family kids movie is crazy. Um, you know, Bob and Lucius talk about Gazer being being one of their old friends, and then Bob hides behind his rusted out bones. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, morbid. That's horrifying. It's not just yep. some skeleton. That's, like, the skeleton of his friend. Um, The other big death that happens is at the very end of the film when Syndrome gets sucked into a turbine, you know, no capes style, which is a great callback. Right. Actually, there's a no bunch capes. of great callbacks that happen in that scene, which is the no capes callback. Mm-hmm. Yes. But also Bob throwing the car, which mm-hmm. is a callback to the, you know, him being able to lift the car from his driveway in the first place. Right. Right but the but but all those callbacks distract from the really dark thing which happens in that moment which is Syndrome gets just eviscerated <laughs> and then the family laughs and walks away right. like sort of gruesome <laughs> when you watch it now how quickly they gloss over that death I think it was my wife who pointed out to me last night again, Sandra pointed out to me last night it's sort of like it's sort of horrifying that Mr. Incredible never really apologizes to Buddy. Mm-hmm. And that Buddy was just this misunderstood kid who got so broken and 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 torn up that he became evil. Mm-hmm. And obviously like he's pretty evil. Like he's not worried about killing people. He kills a lot of people, becoming syndrome. He right. wants to lie and cheat and steal his way to the top, and that's not necessarily Bob Parr's fault. But the one little apology, you know, Mr. Incredible does give. Is sort of half-hearted because he's it's it's right before Syndrome you know says the iconic line which is you got me monologuing you right. slide dog I can't believe it um, and so again there's a lot of like the film sort of teeters on the edge of addressing these deeper themes mm-hmm. but every time it undercuts them with uh, humor or callbacks or other dialogue and maybe that's the nature of how you do it like if right. you're trying to keep kids with it you're trying not to lose the kids at any point Mm -hmm. um but as an as like an adult it sort of feels like a like a missed opportunity like even if they had just added some 30 to 60 second scene where they go visit syndrome's grave or something and they put some flowers down to acknowledge like you know it was sort of tragic like obviously he was evil but it was sort of tragic that he couldn't be redeemed right right and maybe that's something that happens more in you know, 2020 or 2023 than it did in 2000, 2004. Like, I don't think, you know, you mentioned Bond earlier. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I mean, I don't really know. I Confession, I've never seen a Bond film. Oh, shock. Ever. Wow. But I can't imagine that James Bond spends a lot of time grieving his
0: his enemies. Like, I'm pretty sure they go up in flames and then they move on. Like, is, am I right about that? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, he he grieves the Bond girls, right? So the closest that he gets uh, is spoilers for casino royale um yeah is that you know the bond girl in that film is actually like betray- actually betrays him and okay. then she dies and then like the entire second film quantum of solace is all about him like not really able to deal with his grief properly so True. but again that was because she was part like villain but mostly still like a love interest but the actual right. villain, villain, not really any sympathy toward, you know, okay, getting off. So, so that's so. what I'm saying. So it's yeah. not
1: it's not out of genre for them to have death and not address it, right? But it is weird. Like I think we live in a more like like the era that we're in today, culturally, politically, whatever, is definitely more. it definitely definitely values accountability for those kinds of things in a way that previous eras of of art and storytelling didn't so much Mm -hmm. or I think audiences value accountability and seeing it portrayed maybe, or maybe adults do, maybe kids don't, you know what I mean? So I don't know. So this is part of how, what I'm seeing now watching it back.
0: Well, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing because I don't really know if it's a tough line to balance and they kind of lampshaded a little bit, um, with Helen Whenever she tells the kids, like the they're going they have guns, they're going to kill you. Like this yeah. isn't a game, right? That's a good point. This is like so there is an acknowledgement among the adults that like if things don't if things go wrong, like she's like, You have to use your superpowers. Run as fast as you can, Dash. As fast yeah. as I can. As fast as you fast. can. Yes. yeah And then, you know, Violet, you know, you know her her struggle with confidence and she can't put up the shield uh she can hide but she can't protect others and then her development into being able to use the ability uh um you know so there's this acknowledgement that like the kids are vulnerable to the bullets and that there is a sense that like if they're not careful they could die but it's handled in a and in a good way, like they do, walk that balance where, like, as an adult watching the film, I know yeah. that the kids aren't gonna die, right? I like, mean, that's, the kids, that's them, There's just enough threat, like, that for the kids watching it, that it's like it's exciting without being yeah. horrifying. I mean, it's it's the film taking death seriously, and yeah. that
1: that is that moment. But you know, it doesn't. It's it's a it's a protect our own line. You know, the line is not about how death is tragic for anybody the line is about you know mom worried about kids right and teaching kids to advocate for themselves and protect themselves in that way um but to your i mean maybe that's serious enough i mean that scene that a scene like that would probably be more important than a scene you know where they go to the they go to syndrome's grave because Mm -hmm. it's about the family and those are the characters that's that it's about Right. And, you know, I think maybe at some point, Brad Bird made a decision where the film wasn't really about Syndrome, and he wasn't one of the key characters that they were going to focus on.
0: I mean, the guy doesn't get a lot of screen time, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think Mirage... he's not really pitiable. Like, the movie no. doesn't really make him pitiable.
1: No, it doesn't at all. Right. I think Mirage gets more... Maybe Mirage gets more screen time than Syndrome does. Mm-hmm. Um, just dialogue and, and, and FaceTime. So... I don't know. So, it's interesting. Maybe that's... I think if you were going to write a superhero film today, you would probably spend more time with the villain. You probably right. would. And, and, in fact, all superhero films that I can think of do this. They spend way more time with the villain yep. than Syndrome did. Even kid and family films. Like, I'm thinking about, um, you know, even f- recent Disney films like Encanto and, and mm-hmm. Coco, who spend a lot of time making their villains, you know, compelling and and real and connected to the main character in some way. Right. So
0: yeah um, and I mean like you mentioned about Mirage I'm thinking that scene when when Bob thinks that his he's lost his family oh, that he's lost Helen yeah. and he grabs Mirage and he tells her like I could break her in half I could snap her like a twig and Syndrome yeah. just kind of laughs it off and he's like that's kind of dark for you but like as like watching it as an adult I'm like Jesus you know like yeah um like he he's not lying like he could literally like if if bob it's kind of like the superman slash homelander problem or omni-man yeah. or whatever right yeah it's like if superman went bad like uh, how terrible could he well, be what would you do right? yeah it'd what be could over. you do yeah there were Mirage two reasons helpless
1: totally helpless yeah and there were two reasons why that scene was horrifying to me as an adult in ways that it wasn't as a kid and the first was exactly what you said like oh Damn syndrome is a murderous, heartless killer. Mm-hmm. And the second one was like, Wow, the women in this film are just accessories, aren't they? Like, <laughs> you know, Bob doesn't think twice about grabbing her and he doesn't even look at her when he does it. Like she's not even she's just an object to him in that moment. Um, you know, she's a she's a she's a threat object. And then later when she saves him, you know, Mirage becomes a comfort object and Bob hugs her for no mm-hmm. reason. Which, of course, the reason is so that Helen and Bob can have a conflict, which takes them through the arguing, which is critical to the family dynamic of the show for the next 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, they can't just be resolved and together again. Um, But I think having the conflict about Bob hugging Mirage is, you know, covers up the greater conflict, which is that you lied to me for the last, you know, four months of your life. Yeah. And then they sort of get rushed into the next action scene. So I don't know, as we're kind of breaking all these things down, I guess it's like, wow, they did an expert job of incorporating all of these themes mm-hmm. without losing the kids in the process. Right. Um, but as an adult, it's just like, well, you could have done more there. Could have. But, but you would maybe all, as you a would... kid, I was like, oh, man, you should do less there. Right.
0: <laughs> well, so mean, maybe that's the balance you know, yeah uh, uh, pacing and flow and it's not that they didn't think these things through like they they did consider a lot of different elements of it um but it's that really really fine line uh, i think sometimes yeah. oftentimes filmmakers maybe can get too stuck in the weeds about a lot of this stuff and they think it's so important that we have to spend like an entire 10 minute scene breaking down like the philosophical ramifications of something because <coughs> ah, ahsoka. They, they can, uh-huh. yeah it's okay but like Which i loved by the way i sound yes. like i hated ahsoka i loved it go ahead i did too but uh like movies also like they're paced differently than than shows are and yeah they there's such a, a focus when when a movie is so well crafted that it it watching it just feels like they're it's light on its feet it's amazing it's amazing yeah. to watch because yes. so and much information is compressed into so little scenes and, and the way that it, the information is portrayed is very sophisticated, just little bits. Like we know that uh, Bob's boss voiced by the amazing Wallace Shawn is very particular because he's very particular about his pencils. Like just yeah. that little bit tells us everything yes. we need to know about this character pretty much.
1: And we know that Bob is bursting out of his seams to just bust through that wall and do anything else because the moment he sits down, the pencils shake. Yep,
0: and his clothes don't fit properly. And like, his clothes don't just fit too tight. And,
1: and he can't close the car door, and he can't cut the steak, and mm-hmm. he's just totally constrained by this
0: life that he's living. Yep, and it, especially in films, it's like I think that they looked over so many of those scenes and they said. Um, if this scene can do one thing, why can't it do two things? Why can't it do three things? Why can't yeah, it do four things? Yeah, which is
1: which is a comic book thing about how scenes need to do more than one thing at at a time. Uh, Spider Verse, uh, across the Spider Verse, did this really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we talked about it in that episode. Like, yeah, across the Spider Verse does that comic book thing of each scene doing at least two things at once, right?
0: Um, and it does that really well. Yeah. It does. It does. And, um, you know, uh, the, the first Toy Story is phenomenal at this, too. Not Brad Bird, but Pixar. Um, and I think another reason for that is because making the, the scenes was so expensive. It was expensive yes. in time. It was expensive in money. It was expensive in computational power uh, in a way that I think it's, it, it's hard even for us in today's world where Unreal Engine 5 can render um, entire alien landscapes uh, in a flash in real time yes. for the Mandalorian, right? Yes. That back then, like, frames took a lot of time to compute and process and generate. And if it yeah. didn't work, then they had to re-render it, and it took more time and more expense. Uh, Toy Story and, 2 was and, almost lost. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the story, right? That it was deleted, um they lost wait, it wait, on wait. all the servers oh and then there was this one intern right one yeah one intern who actually happened had the movie still. and that employee got fired recently yeah pretty recently for yeah um, after like 25 years. years but yeah yeah well but yeah sure entire toy story 2 was was almost lost forever
1: so i i feel like you know this is this this is this is my thing that i love i always get up on my soapbox about this i've probably done it a few times on the show already but it's it's limitations mm-hmm. are never the enemy they're they always create more interesting art because they force the operators within those constraints to be more precise and to be well thought out you know mm-hmm. when we talk about a scene having to do two or even three things at once like comic books are the origin of that mm-hmm. and comic books didn't have a lot of pages in them and you were only nope. going to print so many and you can only do so many issues and it was expensive to do the ink and and, you know, they're just for kids after all. And so you have these writers who are fighting to squeeze great stories into the limitations that they're offered. Yep. Um, you know, some of my favorite musicians are smaller bands who work within constraints to try to fight those uh, constraints and, and create more interesting art. And 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 so, yeah, Incredibles is a perfect example of this. And, and that's one of the many reasons I think Incredibles is a perfect film. There's one more, one more detail I, I, I'm thinking of, and then I think maybe we're close to time already, Dana, which is crazy, but there's one more detail I'm thinking of towards the beginning of the film that I wanted to go back to. Yeah, take us back. When he's stopping the train, he winces. Mm-hmm. And I was watching that last night, getting ready for the episode, and I just had this moment watching him do that where I was like, wow, Zack Snyder could ever. <laughs> Like, the idea that Mr. Incredible would show some kind of a weakness here. Right. That it would be difficult for him. That he would brace himself. Mm -hmm. You know, his power, it's not some infinite level of strength. Mm -hmm. It's a a moderately insane level of strength, but it's not just, you know, anything. And it's not effortless. And and it makes them feel like people. And that Mm -hmm. was clearly part of what Brad Bird wanted to do. Right. I think there's other moments, too, where, you know, they use their powers, but it's not you know, there's some effort involved. You know, Dash is fast, but he's not so fast that he can run on on water without effort. You know, he's got to right. focus.
0: And it was a Violet surprise can, to him that he could run on water. I love that. it was that. a surprise
1: to him. That was so <laughs> good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Violet uh, is able to generate force fields, but she can't just effortlessly produce a big one. And so they're people and they grow and they have strengths and weaknesses. And it's so good.
0: Yep. And there's effort involved in it and, and, and all of that. I think again, like like you mentioned, like there was a lot of details like, okay, they they knew pretty solidly how strong is Bob? How flexible yeah. is Helen? You know? Yeah. How far can these powers be pushed? Like, yes. You know, like uh, Barry Allen, who knows how fast he is? I guess he can go back in time or whatever? Travel to oh, alternate I know dimensions? Fa- I
1: know how fast he's in. He's, he's the fastest man alive.
0: He's the fastest man alive. But Dash is fast, but not so fast that you know he's breaking certain laws of physics and right. when certain things are are done that su- uh, that surprised the audience it also surprises dash like running yes. on water very very yep. clever uh structure there because you know, the the character arc that happens for
1: somebody whose powers are just incomprehensibly you know strong is is almost nothing it's like you are a human and, and then you gain the power and then you have discovery about that power and then your arc is well how do i use this who's my who are my people now what's my identity but that growth aspect isn't always there and so you know incredible to see ha huh, oops incredible it's, it's <laughs> great to see it's incredible to see in this film
0: yeah i I want to speak a little bit on syndrome before we before we close out like you what mentioned you he doesn't get a whole lot of uh screen time um but You know, I think that there's a, there's a, you know, a dark egalitarian argument to be made that Syndrome makes, which is that uh, if everybody is super, then nobody will be. And he says it in a very sinister voice, you know, that he's going to distribute all of, uh, all of uh, the powers that he got essentially by studying and, and then killing superheroes, right? for 10 years or however long he's been doing it. And he's going to then distribute it to sell, you know, in this sort of way. Uh, He's going to hold the best toys for himself. But there's this idea that like, well, if we just give people power that they're not prepared to, to, to take on, if they, well, power without responsibility, like, you know, it's just, there's a, there's a dark egalitarian like framing of that, which yeah. Is I mean, the broader the broader thing for syndrome is, I was
1: a I was a nobody, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be somebody. And it's unfair that somebody else has a special talent, and so I'm going to use my ingenuity, which is my talent, to try to force this to to be who I can be too. And I'm going to give it to everybody, and now nobody will ever feel less than, or I will never feel less than again. I think right. that's his like thing he doesn't want to feel. We, yeah. he doesn't want to feel that he's not equally as capable as somebody else. he wants to be i mean he wants to be mr incredible right and you know uh, the line you mentioned where he says if everyone's super no one will be well actually helen and dash have that exact conversation in the car in like the first 30 minutes of the film yep wonderful dash back. is like why can't i go out for sports and helen's like well dash you know everyone's special yeah. and he turns to the window and says which is another way of saying no one is right right like even the heroes have to reckon with this idea that, like, what does your specialness mean? Mm-hmm. What does that? What does that make you? Does that mean that you're better or worse than anybody else? And 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 the answer's no. You're still a person. You still have to figure it out in your own way. And you certainly can't be Bob Parr, and you can't steamroll your specialness into other people's lives because that's the way you want to be and how you want to do. Right. But you also can't be syndrome and, and be envious of other people's abilities because you have to you have to accept what's great about yourself as mm-hmm. an individual. Right. And you have to find a way to 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 serve a greater good in that somehow.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh it, Spider-Man 2 um has a really good uh line in it. And I'm gonna get the line wrong, but where where doc uh Dr. Octavius is telling Peter that like the a gift the intelligence means nothing if you're not going to use it for the good of mankind, something like go. that. And it's very, his, it's very Sam Raimi, very Sam Raimi bit there. And of course, Dr. Artivius becomes Doc Ock and he's the villain or whatever, because he gets, you know, he's driven insane by his cybernetics. But sure. Um, like that line, um, I think is very, you know, kind of underlines a lot of, you know, that idea of like, what, what should someone do whenever they're they're talented? It shouldn't Oof. be to hide it. It shouldn't be to use it or it shouldn't be to use it selfishly, but Oof. to use it for the good of mankind whatever yeah. way that that is, um finding your place in society while using your talents to make society better and not just accepting yeah. the status quo yeah, I feel like that's that's the message I think you're right, yep. Well, it was a great discussion. We didn't. I we didn't even talk about uh, some of the imagery of like Atlas and stuff like that. But uh, you know, well, I I know what you're talking about. So I have
1: this thing that I've been telling people for years, which is that there's a shot in The Incredibles where Bob Parr directly mimics the posing of Atlas, shrugging or holding, you know, holding the Earth. Not Atlas right. shrugging, of course. Not Iron. Right. Uh but 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 atlas holding the the earth or the world on his shoulders and actually i might have to backtrack on that a little bit because watching it last night i don't think the posing is exactly the same Mm -hmm. but basically the scene i'm talking about is the scene where the omnidroid goes to crush uh violet and dash Mm -hmm. and violet's making force fields but they're getting weaker and weaker and she's losing strength and she's getting afraid and Bob jumps in and he gets under and he's like, go, go, go. And then there's like a frame where he like kind of has one arm forward and one arm back, mm-hmm. right? And it's kind of Atlas looking. I mean, there are Greek God references. Like Edna Mode's got the Greek gods all over her wall. Right. But um, I don't know. It's quite there. I, it's 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 almost there. It's close. I, I mean, maybe it's there. Maybe it's not. Anyway.
0: Yeah. Well, good talking to you about it. For sure. For sure. Great, great film. Definitely worth watching with or without kids. Um, <laughs> another... Um, great example of really what I think is the golden age of uh, Pixar, um, right in that sweet spot where we were getting yeah. brilliant movies like The Incredibles, Well, before Disney bought most of them. Before Disney bought it, yeah. But I mean, Finding Nemo, Ratatouille, uh, even Cars, which might get its own mm. episode, to the surprise of cars. some of our
1: listeners. I love Cars. I think Cars is amazing. Again, bias because I was 7 in 2007 so I was the audience but Cars is a movie that hit me right where I needed it to hit me and and still hits me to this day as a fully grown adult a lot of that's cuz I'm a I mean you know Cars and Incredibles both happen to be stories about I mean obviously they're animated characters but they're sort of these white male american characters and the, the sorts of things that a white male grows up thinking about and arrogance and special abilities and how do you fit it in society and how do you use your powers and talents and so cars and incredibles both approach those themes and so i am the target audience in all <laughs> kinds of ways for those movies
0: well who knows maybe we'll do a cars episode some down somewhere down the line but uh yeah renew your disney plus subscription come on Dis- uh disney give me some money here Uh um, there you go uh, because Ahsoka and great back catalog of some of the greatest films ever made. Stick around. More, more coming on Triumph. Thank you guys. Have a good one.